Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I confess that to come to Nebraska to talk about groundwater management is a little bit like bringing cold to Newcastle. And so uh, I have to say I'm a little bit nervous about that. And in particular, I'll be talking about some of the research I'm doing in Nebraska. Uh, and so I find that a very interesting uh, uh, proposition. Um, I should say I'm going to express a lot of opinions today. Uh, these opinions are all my own. So if you like them, that's wonderful. If you don't like them, I'd love to hear about it. But in particular, I work with a number of great collaborators on fun projects. And uh, uh, the, the responsibility for my opinions is just solely on myself. But if you like them, they can take the credit for them. So I think everybody here, I guess before we get started, um, how many social scientists do we have in the room? How many uh, engineers do we have in the room? And then we have some ecologists, and then we have some people that are shy. Okay. There, are, there are others as well. Lawyers. Lawyer. Oh, you're not shy. That's why we sit in the back. You sit in the back and, and uh, sharpen your knives. Excellent. So, I'm going to focus today on groundwater, and particularly agricultural groundwater use. Uh, I think these are topics that we all care about. Many of us are very, very familiar with them. Uh, and so I'm not going to go through a lot of the basic statistics about how important it is to agriculture, how much water is used across the world for growing food. Um, we know that groundwater plays a critical role uh, for individual producers to mitigate drought and climate change risk. That aggregates up uh, locally and regionally to maintain our agricultural productivity, our food security, and maintain our rural economies. We also know that groundwater is critical to sustaining freshwater ecosystem services and surface waters in general. I purposely chose a picture that's about 80 years old because the issues don't change. These issues have been the same for a long time and will continue to be the same. Now, uh, I'm an economist and just about everything I tell you today will be through the eyes of an economist. It will, it will be how I see groundwater use problems in agriculture as an economist. And so to start off with, uh, I'm going to give you a quick overview of what economics contributes to multidisciplinary research on water. Well, as an economist, or in general as economists, we seek to explain observed patterns of water use. Water is a complex system. It has biophysical and social components. The data are complex. They're spatial. They're dynamic. And we like to understand what's determining water use what the underlying behaviors, what the underlying decision-making are. Once we've done that, we then, hopefully, we can provide relevant input to coupled models that include engineering, that include ecology, and that include other components. And ultimately, we want to provide relevant policy analysis. Generally, our work tends to focus on areas where there is conflict over water. Uh, and so we, we like to say something relevant that we can use moving forward. So in terms of the motivation for this talk and my work in general, uh, I'm going to start with this statement. Uh, there's been a lot of research over the last 50 years uh, trying to under understand the feedback between biophysical and social components of surface water groundwater systems. I should clarify, biophysical is a very short word to say a lot of things. It means both our crop production systems, our freshwater ecosystems, our climate systems, and everything else. Uh, it's a word that I and others have found very useful in uh, 
meet the NSF's 15-page grant requirements. It covers a lot of ground. Uh, a lot of the research, I just mentioned NSF, a lot of the agenda for this research has been driven uh, by uh, NSF's large programs over the last decade or more. Uh, but we can go back uh, 50, 60 years. Uh, economists were looking at groundwater use 60 years ago. The first applications of dynamic programming and optimal control were 50 years ago. Uh, the first uh, integrated hydrologic economic models were on analog systems in the 60s. So there's a long tradition of trying to understand the feedback between natural and human components of systems. There's been some great research done on these interactions. Uh, some of this has been done by people in this room. Um, so it's with some trepidation that I then put up the next slide. Um, we've done a lot of research on integrated hydrologic ecologic modeling. Uh, but the sum total of the impact of that research on actual groundwater management in the real world has been very little. So we understand systems much, much better than we did before. But we have not been very able as academics to translate that research out into the real world. Now, um, I'm comfortable making that statement, although it troubles me. I would love to get your impressions and your feedback about that statement. I'd love to hear stories where that's not true. Please, if there are stories where you know that's not true, please do share them with me. But that's the starting motivation for this talk. Why? Why is it that we're in this situation? And I'm going to suggest um, a couple of things. Um, so I'm going to talk about two different broad things in the seminar. The first is to try to understand what, it, what is it about the way that research is structured and the way that we do our research and the kind of assumptions we make that might lead us uh, to do research that is, has difficulty extending out to policy. Then the second thing I'm going to talk about is, uh, is a, a small case study of the Republican River Basin that I've been working on for a few years uh, uh, with a number of different groups, again, including people in this room. And that I think is getting towards policy relevant, but it's not there yet. So that's kind of where we're going today. Um, so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell four different stories about water. Uh, each story I'm going to start with a statement. And then I'm going to see what that means for our, our, the way that we conceptualize the resource, what it means for our research, and uh, what the implications of that are. So the first statement is, groundwater is a common property resource. That's pretty standard. Does everybody agree with that? I guess, can I ask for a show of hands? Is that too much to ask? But how many people agree with this statement? I see at least some doubt. <laughs> um, so what is a common property resource? Typically, a common property resource in economic terms is something whose consumption is rivalrous. That means if I consume some of it, nobody else can consume that portion. It's typically also a resource that's non-excludable. So in some way, you can't keep people from using that resource. So the typical, can anybody guess where this is, by the way? Bloodbath Carpet. This is Signal Hill in Southern California. So this is during the, uh, the oil boom in the 1930s. Um, each one of those tree-like things is, a, is an oil well, is a derrick. And so common property resources are very common in natural resources. 
So you have a common pool of oil. Uh, everybody that owns land can put a derrick on the land. The, the limitation on where you can put derricks is the size of the pad. And so you have a proliferation. As a result, everybody pumps. There's a tragedy of the commons. Everybody knows this story. It's a nice story. Uh, we can argue you have the same thing in water. But the question that I'm going to put to you today is, do we have the same thing in water? And so the distinction, uh, when we consider whether water is common property, we have to think about two things. Well, first of all, what is the physical nature of the interaction? That's a hydrologic question. And the second uh, question is, what is the economic value of water? So how does it get used? I'll argue that both of those are actually important in determining whether water is common property as we view it in agricultural groundwater. We'll start with the, uh, the physical nature of the interaction. This is a figure taken from uh, one of the most famous papers in resource economics, uh, which considers water as a common property resource. So here we have a cross-section of an aquifer. Um, it's uh, what we call a bathtub. It's full of water. You take water out, there's some return flow, there's precipitation. Uh, but the level of water in the aquifer is everywhere the same, and adjustment is instantaneous. Now, this is a lovely model that lets you do some very nice math, uh, lets you come up with some very nice policy implications. Uh, but we do know that that's not actually how aquifers work. Um, I'm going to present you a slightly different model. This model is slightly less wrong. It's still wrong. It's slightly less wrong. Um, Kinds of depression, depression exist. There is well interference. There are regional hydraulic gradients. So groundwater is a diffusional system. Um, and really, we need to take that into account. So one question as to whether water is common property uh, rests on the, uh, on the issue of how far apart the pumping is occurring and what the physical nature of the interaction is. In other words, how much well interference is there? If there is little or no well interference, then even if you're extracted from a common pool, you're really not in a common property resource. Now, these two figures at first glance look almost exactly the same. Right? These are center pivots on water sections. Um, the big difference between the figure on the left and the figure on the right uh, is that the well density in the figure on the left is about a thousand times higher than the well density in the figure on the right. And it turns out that that makes all the difference. If you are in a western irrigated agricultural setting where you're, you're irrigating water sections, you have a half mile between pivots. The mean well density is, is uh, less than a mile, or, or at least around a mile uh, between wells. And the well interference is limited in that situation. In fact, we have well spacing restrictions in rules and regulations specifically to prevent well interference. The purpose of well spacing requirements is to prevent well interference. Uh, and so I would argue, in fact, um, that on the basis of this, there's limited physical interaction uh, in Western irrigated agriculture. Now, I've been careful to say Western irrigated agriculture. If we go somewhere like India, uh, well density is far higher. To my mind, an open research question, whether in that setting you have more of a commonality of the resource. Uh, certainly, even uh, in intense Indian smallholder agriculture, you still have a well density that's about 10 times less than the oil fields of Southern California. 
So it's not clear to me that there's commonality, but there's more commonality uh, than well. Now let's talk a little bit about the value. Let's talk about the economic value of groundwater. So uh, I think this is the only graph. Oh, it's not the only graph I'm going to put up. It's a graph that I'm going to put up today. If economists view water as having value, the value of the water uh, can be thought of as the value of the final product that it produces. So we use water in this case to grow crops. The more water we apply to a crop, the higher the yield is going to be. Uh, economists like to think about decisions on the margin, and what that means is incremental decisions. So when we look at the value of water in agriculture, one thing that we often care about is how much additional profit we're going to get from our crop if we add one more unit of water. That's a key concept. We call that the value of the marginal product. Tell us if we add one more unit of water, how much more value do we get out of the crop? Um, this is a graph here. We have quantity of water applied on the right-hand side. We have the value of the marginal product, so the value of incremental water, on the left-hand side. There's a crossing of the vertical axis at P0. That means if water is too expensive, you won't use any to grow your crop. That's pretty obvious. The more water you put on, the first units of water you put on, you get a lot of value from your crop. As you keep adding water, at some point, you'll get less and less value of water, and at some point, the value of the marginal product drops to zero. That's very important. In agriculture, the value of the marginal product of water always goes to zero at some point. That's a very technical way of saying that producers don't flood their crops. If you put enough water on a crop, it will drown. We don't do that. So there is a limit, there is a physical limit to how much water we're going to put on a crop. Now, let's think about oil. What is the value of the marginal product of oil? It's the world market price of a barrel of oil. And that price is constant for a while. So the value of the marginal product of oil does not change. In other words, there's never an incentive to turn an oil well off. So, if you are extracting oil from a common pool resource or otherwise, you'll never turn it off. And so, from an economic perspective, I would argue that oil and water are different. They're both fugitive resources, they're both diffusional. But because of the way we use the resource, I'd argue uh, that groundwater actually typically should not be viewed as common property. Again, that's my thing. At the end, we'll take a survey and see how people. How people think. All right. Let's see if we can. Let's see if we can go on to the next one. So my next story uh, says this: declining groundwater levels are the primary driver of changing groundwater management. That's a pretty strong statement. Do people like that statement? I guess how, like, we can have a show of hands. How many people agree with this statement? I guess people are getting shy as the talk goes on. <laughs> Um, there is a lot of fantastic research on groundwater depletion, measuring groundwater depletion and understanding groundwater depletion. Um, I have a couple of papers here just in the last year that are, that are quite relevant to the region that have, uh, uh, in some cases, authorship right there. If we care about groundwater depletion as researchers, why do we care about groundwater depletion? Well, we care about it because the newspapers tell us we have to care about it. 
these are some newspaper articles that I guess they're from the last year. And in all cases, we care about groundwater depletion. Okay? Uh, we need to worry about groundwater decline. Terrible thing. Now, let me ask you the following question. Uh, can any of you name the case where <coughs> groundwater depletion has led to changes in groundwater management at the local level that have had a binding impact? On producers? Yes, what? Yeah. <laughs> Madison County, Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, which NRD is that? Uh, California. Yeah. California. And when you, when you say binding changes, what are the changes that happen? How do you? We have to get the NRD director of CPR. <laughs> but did the change in regulation actually lead to economic damages to producers to reduce their pump? I think so. That's a higher standard. Well, I mean, you, you guys have the data out here, we don't. Actually, what happened was it was rain. And so they put the, the policy in place and then they didn't have to put it up because of rain and they didn't have to do it. So, so there are examples. There's yeah. one in Kansas in Sheridan uh, uh, 6, the, the local enhanced management area. But I would argue that actually something else is driving. When you look at what's actually driving changes in groundwater management that impact farmers in a meaningful way, by meaningful, they change their behavior in a way that has an economic burden on them. There's something else driving that, uh, driving that change. So, can anybody guess where this is? Okay, first of all, can anybody guess what we're looking at here? Oh, you're going to have to stop it. So, it's a dry river. I guess I should have asked what we're not looking at. We're not looking at water. Where is this? And I guess what we have here is the bottom of the screen gauge. The river is dry. Maybe the next figure will help. <laughs> so this is Highway 61 south of Benkelman. Uh, this is the South Fork of the Republic River. This is the US, US So I'd argue that if we actually look at what's driving meaningful change in groundwater policy at the moment, not just in the US but worldwide, you see the same thing in China. Uh, you see the same thing in Australia. What's driving that is surface water groundwater interaction. So the impacts, we all know that, I think at least in, in Nebraska, everybody knows that as you pull water out of a well, uh, as the uh, kind of depression intersects the stream, you start pulling water out of the stream, and that's kind of stream depletion. And that creates two kinds of issues for groundwater users. Uh, the first is it provides impact on transboundary surface water allocations. And the second is it provides impact on freshwater ecosystems. So I purposely haven't put any examples on one or two. Can you think of some examples where there are impacts on transboundary surface water allocations that have impacted meaningfully uh, producers that use groundwater? Okay, now you're showing. Now you're showing. Can we think of some places where number one is true? And there has been binding change to groundwater policy as a result of impacts of groundwater pumping on surface water. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, the Republican River Basin, the Pecos River Basin, the, uh, the Klamath, a number of uh, uh, basins throughout the U.S. Can we think of river basins where impacts on freshwater ecosystems have led to binding change on groundwater use? Well, the Platte River Basin, again, the Klamath River Basin, a number of river basins in China and Australia and Spain. You, all of you are shy, but I think it's a lot easier to come up with examples here than it was for the previous one. And so I would argue that there are research focuses on groundwater depletion and, and policies to control groundwater depletion. If we really look at what's driving change in groundwater management, it's stream depletion. This water story we can cover quite quickly. It's not feasible to monitor and enforce groundwater pumping restrictions. Um, I have uh, I'm an associate editor of Water Resources Research. I've had a number of reviewers of papers tell me this. I've had people come to me at conferences and tell me this. Um, how many of you believe that this is true? That's a, that's a definition. Politically powerful. Now, um, I'm going to argue, and again, I, I don't think it's a hard sell here in Nebraska that if you need to, it's quite feasible to monitor and enforce groundwater pumping And in fact, the first place in the world to meter groundwater use was in the Upper Republic. And so they started metering in 1978. So to me, that's one of the most innovative moments in groundwater management. They, they've started metering well before any of the litigation. And, and at least my understanding is they started metering because of the concern over long-term use of the resource. So they were fully metered by 1982. That's 30 years ago. Uh, we also find meters quite widespread around the world. You know. uh, all of Kansas is metered now. There's widespread metering in Nebraska, Australia is metered, New Zealand is metered. Um, meters are controversial. I mean, this is your point. Meters are controversial. Um, they're costly to producers, and uh, they're costly to the managers too, because the managers then need to send somebody out to read them. However, it is also quite good evidence that meters reduce water use. That's, that's a separate issue. My own thinking on this matter has actually changed in the last year. I'd argue that if you are okay with a little bit of imperfect monitoring, you can actually do quite a good job of monitoring uh, pumping restrictions without meters at all, if you certify and enforce irrigated acreage. So these are the kinds of systems we have on the platform. If you don't monitor, but you check who irrigates what, you can have perfect enforcement. You have uncertainty about the amount of water pumped. But you can still exert control over it, and sometimes that trade off may be worthwhile. Now, we've been talking a lot about political feasibility. Meters require uh, expenditures by the producers, and that's a hard thing. Um, however, when we look in the developing world, we actually also see innovation of a quite different type on meter. So, this is a scheme in China. Uh, this gentleman is a, uh, is a smallholder producer. And he's holding a debit card. And what the government has done here, 
I don't know, have any, I know some of you are aware of this here. What the government has done here is they've capped the wealth and they put a debit card reader on it. And each producer is given a debit card to buy energy. And while they have credit on the debit card, they can swipe the card and more comes out of the wealth. When they've used up their allocation of energy, the wealth's shut off. They need to find another card or borrow another card from another farmer. Uh, it's a wonderful scheme in terms of how economists would think about it. So these particular cards, there's a number of different schemes that run on both energy and water use. Schemes that run on energy, to my mind, the incentives are wonderful because the more, energy, the, the more water you pump, the further the water table drops and you get an immediate feedback and then your water becomes more expensive. So schemes that use energy as the unit of measure actually provide you an incentive to conserve water. Now, I certainly would never suggest that this kind of scheme is applicable uh, in much of Western everyday agriculture, although I like to think of the idea of having uh, producers on sensitivity with debit cards, but that's, we would never <laughs> suggest that. And there's no need to suggest that, right? Here we have one well servicing hundreds of smallholder producers. It's a very different way of working. It's a different solution to the monitoring and enforcement problem, but it's nevertheless an effective solution where technology can be used. Here's water story number four. I thought I'd inject a little bit of humor uh, in this story. So we have measured the surface of Mars at higher resolution and accuracy than we have measured agricultural groundwater use on Earth. How many of you agree with that statement? A couple of you. Yeah, so far, I hope I've been knocking down all the statements so far, but uh, this one's a little trickier. Uh, so to my mind, the best agricultural water use data in the world right now is from the Upper Republic of Natural Resources. Uh, there are other resources and databases that come close, but right now... Each blue dot is a well. The, uh, the area of the surface area of each dot is uh, proportional to the amount of water pumped. Um, we have, and I, I changed the metric here, I apologize. Um, we have around 3,200 active wells in the uh, Upper Republic of Natural Resources, over 7,000 kilometers square. That's about a 1.48 kilometer data spacing within this area. And the accuracy of a propeller flow meter is plus or minus 2%. Uh, interestingly, I've never heard anything in the legal literature about this. Uh, so the things that I want you to remember until the next slide is 1.48 kilometers and plus or minus 2%. Everybody okay with that? Let's look at Martian topography. You didn't think you'd be hearing about Mars <laughs> in this talk. Um, the Mars Global Survey uh, ran a laser altimeter. Uh, the, the resolution at which we know the surface of Mars is between 119 and 476 meters. And the accuracy is plus or minus 0.05%. Now, it's a facetious example, but this should give all of us pause. If we think about the social costs and the social benefits of agricultural groundwater use, and the fact that we are regulating producers based on their water use that we can't measure, and that we can measure the surface of Mars better than we can understand agricultural groundwater use here. 
that should give all of us pause. I think that is a huge challenge for policy. And I, I don't want to say, um, I guess I need to be careful. We have an enormous amount of remote and sensor data on us. We have an incredible amount of data. And I'm going to come back to that. But in terms of some of the data that are most important to us as social scientists, as economists, for policy, we don't have those data. So we can go a little bit further and we can say, well, okay, um, we have some estimates of water use. There is some estimate of agricultural water use everywhere around the earth. And so we can say, well, you know, those estimates might be pretty good. One of the standard databases we use in the US is the USGS water use data, which come out every five years. And so one of the things that I thought I would do is to compare metadata from the Upper Republican, where we know exactly, I guess plus or minus 2%, we know exactly what comes out of the ground, with the USGS estimates of water use data for the, the five years where we can match both data, uh, the database. So we have three counties here, Chase, Dundee, and Perkin. Um, the numbers show you the difference between the USGS estimate and the Upper Republican NRD estimate. So plus means the USGS data are larger than the uh, metadata, minus means the metadata are more than the USGS data. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to point out. First of all, the bias goes in both directions. There's nothing consistent here. Uh, some of the numbers are very good. Um, some of the numbers are not good. Um, you know, we have a bias of plus 40% and minus 20%. So, if we can think about introducing an error plus or minus 30 or 40 percent into the basic input in all our hydrologic models, what does that do for us? Does that give us pause? No, it should. It should. It gives me pause. It makes me worry about how we are uh, translating our results out into the broader world. Now, I want to be very clear at this point. Um, this isn't intended to be a negative talk. We are in the middle of a data revolution in agriculture. So we have producers with um, remote stocks and stuff on their smartphones, with remote weather stations on their center pivots, with computers on their center pivots, with variable application rates that are actively experimenting, that have wireless sensors in their fields. There is an enormous amount of data being collected on agricultural groundwater. but we don't have access to it. In some cases, here and there, and again, there are people in this very university that have, that are working with some of these data. But the ability of the producer on the ground to collect data and generate experiments about the interaction between water use and crop growth, I would argue now beyond what we can do experimentally at the universities, because we don't have access to the money or the equipment or the land. And so to me, that's an enormous opportunity. How can we go back out and work with the producers and understand these data and collect them in a way that we can answer some interesting research questions as well as understanding their policy implications? So those are the four water stories. I guess, um, are you convinced? <laughs> Let's ask you that. Let's start with that. Um, I'm not sure which is the most controversial. Let me at least say, have I changed the way that you look at these questions? Maybe. 
people are nodding either sleepily or um, so I'm, I'm going to stop now for a minute and then I'm going to talk about a particular part of a strand of my own research. Uh, at this point I'm going to put up this slide. It's a slide I love to show at conferences. It's the Republican Riverbanks. And I'd like you just to take a minute to look at this slide uh, and think about what you see there. And now Having done that, I'm going to say that this slide in many ways captures the difficulty of doing multidisciplinary research <coughs> and the difficulty of understanding why. So this is the Republican River Basin. That's a place where there are compelling policy questions. Depending who you ask and their disciplinary basis, you'll get a very different answer to what you see here. If you ask an economist, they'll probably see some center pivots. Or an economist, they'll see some center pivots and think about crop production functions. Uh, if you ask an ecologist, they might wonder what the habitat is like. Um, if you see an engineer, I have to be careful um, If you see an operations researcher, do we have any operations researchers here? Okay. If you ask an operations researcher, they might say, look, there's a bit of center pivot right there. It's a wasted opportunity. Be very careful with this. So. If you ask a stream general ecologist, they'll focus on the on the shape of the meander and the stream will follow. We're all looking at parts of the same problem, and all of those parts of the problem are important. But we need to figure out a way to talk to each other. And that is, as all of you know that have worked on this kind of research, it's not easy because we look at the same problem through very different eyes. So I've worked on the Republic River Basin since 2006. I have a number of acknowledgements. Again, everything that I say from now on is, is my opinions, but truly it's the students that have done the work. I've had uh, the privilege of working with a large number of fabulous students. They've done the hard work. They should take the credit for everything that's good there. Uh, I also have a number of great collaborators, uh, including for the most recent research, Mark Pagan, Karina Schoenbold in this room. Uh, we've had three sources of funding so far. The first is complementary human systems. Uh, the second is the uh, Joint NSF USDA Water Sustainability and Climate Program. And then the third is the NSF ICOR program. And so I have to acknowledge uh, all of those agencies because without them, uh, this work would not be done. So you all know a little bit about the Republican River Basin. Actually, I'm sure that you all know much more than me about it. It's a multi-state basin, so but you have to bear with me just in case. I've cut down a lot of the background material. I presented much of this uh, around the world, and I generally present a lot of material that starts with where is Nebraska. Uh, and I think I can skip over that. <laughs> so that location map is missing. Um, so the Republic River Basin, it's a multi-state basin. It covers 25,000 square miles above the High Plains Aquifer. Uh, there are 11,000 active wells in the Nebraska portion of the Republic River Basin that are used for uh, irrigating crops. And as you all know, there's active interstate conflict over in-stream flows. And as a result of that conflict, uh, there are ongoing changes in how the water resources are managed. Now, uh, I have to give a little bit of a technical presentation now. Uh, the High Plains Aquifer and aquifer hydrology in general uh, is something that can be a very difficult concept to explain and visualize. Uh, and so I'm going to defer here to the New York Times which published this description of the High Plains Aquifer. They say it was a waterlogged jumble of sand, clay, and gravel. 
that's a pretty good description. So the high plains aquifer is a waterlogged jungle of sand clay and gravel. Every student in college has two favorite professors, Dr. Google and Dr. Wikipedia. And so uh, Dr. Google very kindly provided the following uh, picture of a jumble of sand, clay, and gravel. And so here is the pipeline in case you're wondering how to visualize it for, uh, for your own research needs. Um, I guess the point here is maybe we need to work with science journalists a little more. Or a little less, I'm not sure, one or the other. Um, so the Republic of the River Basin, again, it's 11,000 wells, it's 1.25 million irrigated acres. <coughs> uh, this is the Nebraska portion, which is the portion I'm going to be focusing on today. Each dot is a well. Uh, and again, I think many of you have seen this figure or something like it before. So what is the water management issue in the Republic of the River Basin? And I'm going to leave aside details of the legal conflict of the lawsuits and so on. But we're going to get to what's happening on the ground now. So the outcome of everything that's come up to now is that within the Republic of the River Basin, there is a need to reduce pumping from historic levels. So there's really two goals in the management. The first is a legal need. Right? There is a legal need for compact compliance related to stream degradation. The second goal of management is a different need that is not a legal need, but it's one that at least when I've talked to producers and managers, comes up enough that I think it is important that people do care about it. And that is the desire for long-term aquifer preservation. That is something that I'm an economist, so I take a pretty cynical view of the world, but it's something that has been stated to me enough in different contexts that I think it is important. So within the Republican River Basin, um, there are a number of approaches to water management that have been imposed on the groundwater users. All wells are metered. This is mandatory. There are quantified and allocated water rights of carryover, which in economic terms you could call a quota. Uh, I don't really have time to go into all the ins and outs of the regulations. They are very, very complicated uh, in terms of how the carryover is quantified and, and uh, carried over. There is strong local enforcement. By this I mean that there have been instances where producers have been caught bypassing their well meters and they have been stripped of their water rights. And so these are penalties of millions of dollars. And so I do believe that the enforcement of the metering is very good. There's currently an active land retirement program within the basin. So the natural resource districts are actively buying irrigated land to retire it, dry up the acres, uh, and reduce the overall use of groundwater in the district. Uh, let's just think that these are small sums of money. Uh, the Alberta Republican spent $13 million on land retirement in 2011 and $83 million in 2012. Those are two big projects in the uh, Rock Creek and Anchor projects. And there are also limited groundwater tradable permits where uh, producers are allowed under certain restrictions to transfer the right to pump groundwater from one field to another, whether it's on their field or another field. So as a researcher and as an economist, what are the questions here? Well, we have a spatial dynamic hydrologic system. And there are many, many heterogeneous decision makers. So we have to look at what each of them are doing. We can manage the system in many different ways. Each Management choice is a different policy, and each one 
means different things to the producers, leads to different hydrologic impacts, and produces a different trade-off between what you lose in agriculture and what you gain in the stream. Reducing water use does hurt producers. You know, that, that's what happens, and it does generate, hopefully, in-stream benefits. And there is a trade-off there that we need to understand. We have multiple types of policies. All of the policies I mentioned above are currently in use. And so it's important for us to understand which policies are effective and why. That's kind of a research goal. So what I'm going to do now is present uh, an analysis of a number, not all of the policies that are out there, but a number of the policies that are currently in place in the upper Republican, and try to compare what are the impacts. What is this trade-off? So I'm going to look at three different things. Uh, land retirement quotas and tradable permits. Um, land retirement, so you buy land and you take it out of production. It turns out you can do that in different ways. You can buy the cheapest land, so you just figure out which is the cheapest land to buy, so it's the least productive land, you take it out of production. You can buy the cheapest water, right? so you find the land which gets the least incremental value from the water it's using, and you buy that. Uh, those two are pretty subtly different, but they are different. You can also buy the cheapest stream diffusion. In other words, you buy the land that has the highest impact on the stream diffusion relative to its value in agriculture. And in fact, that's what the district is currently doing. They have some kind of targeting on stream diffusion. Uh, the quotas can have zoning with distance to the stream or not. And the tradable permits, uh, we can think of them in two ways. They can be uh, very simple or they can be very complex. And in this case, what I mean by that is that a simple permit takes the value of that last unit of water that everybody's using and makes it the same across everybody. That's a very simple system. That, uh, what that means is you have a market with one price for water. That's what that means. What it also means is that in that market with one price for water, you're completely ignoring the hydrology. That's wrong, but it's still maybe close to being very efficient. The other thing you can do is you can have a, a system where not only do you take into account the value of the water, but you take into account the spatial benefits of the in-stream flows. So you factor in, and this is a technical thing, I decided not to show any equations today. We're already close to the end of the seminar and equations for people to sleep. But you can come up with an equation that balances both the value to the producers and the damages in-stream that are uh, described by the stream condition factor, which is the SDF. <coughs> We're going to do an analysis at the natural resources district level because that's the level of management. So what are the things we care about? So from a theoretical point of view, you can show that land retirement is expensive. So just purely from an economic point of view, land retirement is very expensive. There are political reasons why land retirement occurs. But the question is, what are the benefits we get from reducing the external costs, reducing the stream damages through land retirement? Our simple and complex schemes um, comparable. Complex schemes are always going to be better than simple schemes, theoretically. But if we can come up with simple ways that get close, that's always better. As we change our water use reductions, does the ranking of policies change? So do our answers change as we change what we need to do? Uh, 
And this is important because if we have droughts or climate change or something else changing in 10 years, you want a policy that's robust. So you don't want a policy that goes from being the best policy for a very narrow range of water use reductions to a very bad policy everywhere else. Uh, as a reference point, the Upper Republican paid $2,300 uh, $300 per acre to retire land or $2,100 per acre foot because each acre had a little more than an acre foot of water associated in 2011. Actually, prices since then have gone up enormously. This is now cheap. Uh, and similarly, the rental premium of irrigated, I think it's around $200 per acre, but I think it's probably more than that now. Um, but these are our kind of our marks. The analysis I'm going to present is mostly 2011 prices. So I'm going to show you two movies now. Uh, again, this is these are each one in the Upper Republican. I'm going to just present two policies. One is irrigation retirement that's targeted on stream flow. So here what we're going to do is sequentially we're going to remove wells based on the most cost-effective way of reducing speed. Blue means the well is pumping exactly what it has been pumping all along. And then you have these shades. And so red means the well is shut down completely. So I'll show you a movie. The amount of acre feet of acre is up here. The number of wells shut down is here. So we start at 100 wells shut down. Uh, for irrigation retirement, you just see blue or red. Because a well is either operating without any constraint or it's shut down. So, as we see, uh, what you're really saying is that wells close to the stream network get shut down. First, it's not anything surprising, but you can visualize where in the county and in which counties the impacts are going to be. And so, at the end, we've shut down 3,000 out of 3,200 wells. And you can see there's only a few wells left operating. So let's look now at the complex tradable climate systems, which from an economic point of view are what we would call fast best. In other words, they're, they're efficient in the sense that they uh, capture the balance between economic value and extreme benefits as well as possible. Well, they're the least cost way of achieving the, the reduction in water use. So here what we'll see is, first of all, for some time, nothing happens. It looks as though nothing's happening. Uh, and I'll come back to that momentarily. And then again, we see an expansion. Again, some critical areas uh, close to streams get taken out of production first. Uh, and then for very large reductions of water, uh, everything looks the same. Now let's put this on a graph and see if I can explain how it all comes together. On the horizontal axis here, we have stream diffusion reduction in ADP. So this is telling us how much water we put back in the stream. On the vertical axis, we have the total cost of the policy on an annual basis to files. So that's telling us how much we've damaged producers by doing this. Uh, I've only shown you a portion of the graph. The two ends of the graph, at the two ends, all the policies are the same. So if you don't regulate anybody, it doesn't, you know, the cost is zero. That's true on the rent every policy. If you shut everybody down, it doesn't matter how you get there. The cost is the same to everyone. So what we really care about is in between, and in particular what we care about is the lower portions of the growth. I'll come to the two blue dots on the line in a moment, but I want to show you a few things. So the three blue lines are different versions of land retirement policies. So if you care about stream depletion, 
Buying the cheapest land or the cheapest water is a very bad way of going about reducing water. Targeting on stream depletion, which is this line here, the lowest of the blue lines, uh, is better. It's very expensive at low levels, but it's better at high levels. And in fact, off the graph at the highest levels of reductions, it uh, approaches but doesn't get uh, exactly equal to the complex trading environment. The quota is the red line. So this is the policy they have in place. So if you continue the policy you have in place, um, you can achieve uh, not too expensive reductions relative to land decline. So it's cheaper to continue the policy you have in place than to retire land. But doing that affects all farms. That's a reason why uh, land retirement is preferred, and that you can retire land and everybody else is unaffected. The trade alternative schemes we have the simple scheme and the compact scheme. The simple scheme where you completely ignore the hydrology. You just have a free market, there's one price for water, you don't care about the hydrology. Actually does very well at low levels of speed depletion reduction. Now, this is not a general result. There are some quirks in the hydrology and the distribution of uh, agricultural productivity in the upper Republican uh, that lead to that result. I wish that were a general result, it would make everybody's life a lot easier, but it's not. In this case, it's there. Uh, and of course, the tradable permit system, uh, if you have the first best solution, it's always going to be the most cost effective. The two blue lines represent the um, Upper Republicans Rock Creek project and my best guess of their costs and how they would translate onto this graph. So the left hand blue dot is the cost of just the, the uh, stripping the water rights off the land. So, um, that is not, it's targeted, but it's targeted only in the sense that you could buy a farm that was on the market. And so it's roughly the same as the other land department policies. The right hand side blue dot is the cost of the policy if you include the stream augmentation that's going to be done under that project. So part of their project is to uh, build pipes uh, into the river that they can use to pump water during drought periods and augment the supply of the river. Now in that case, the the Rock Creek project does a lot better, uh, although again, I still don't think it does as well as the tradable funds. Although again, the Rock Creek project is something that's implemented that didn't require negotiation with lots of landowners, whereas the other policies. So what are the implications of this? So I'm an economist, it isn't a surprise, I guess, but it's nice to see that an efficient tradable permit scheme, it should be more cost effective than current policies. Um, and so then that brings us back to our third water story. In order for an efficient tradable permit scheme to exist, we must have monitoring and enforcement of groundwater pumping rights. If we don't have that, tradable permit schemes can't work, particularly in a complex regulatory environment. Now, uh, as you guys already know, and as I hope I've convinced you to be others, um, the legal and institutional requirements of groundwater trading are increasingly being met. So we're, we're meeting them in Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, Australia, New Zealand. In fact, groundwater trading is happening in Nebraska. It is happening in, in Australia. Uh, a lot of it is happening in Texas. The framework is there in Kansas. The markets are there in New Zealand, but there haven't been transactions. But all of these systems are um, 
what we might call, well, in the US the systems are more bulletin boards or coffee shop markets, so it's difficult to find people to trade with. Uh, Australia actually has a good markets because the service wasn't market very well as well. So uh, having done this research for a number of years uh, and prodded by colleagues and including Karina, of course, uh, the next thing we've tried to do is to actually set up an online groundwater trading system, uh, initially in the upper Republican, but we're now trying to work with the twin pack NRB as well. Uh, so this is work that has some USDA and NSF funding. And the idea here is that currently the regulations are in place to allow groundwater transfers. But it's very, very hard to find people to transfer with and trade with. Uh, and so from an economic point of view, if we can reduce the cost of executing that transaction of finding a trading partner, uh, we should see a lot of benefits both to the producers and industry. And so the idea is that we're uh, setting up a, an online trading system where each producer with rights has, a, uh, has an account and you can have anonymous confidential bidding. So you go on the account, you put in your bids or your offers, nobody else sees them. Uh, and then once we clear the market, we take into account all of the regulatory compliance, the verification, we have the hydrologic model, we have the hydrologic constraints in there, and then we work with the producers to make sure that those transactions execute. Uh, so on paper, this is a wonderful idea, right? You set up an online system, the producers all uh, are much happier, the producers really do like this idea. Our feedback from the producers and the water managers is very positive. Uh, and at this point, of course, you hit exactly the, uh, the limit of research in the beginning of, of, uh, of something else. And so I can say that it's, I think for everybody involved in this, it's been a fascinating and humbling experience to try to uh, take something that started up on pencil and paper and try to make it work in the real world. Of course, the regulations are far more complex. Of course, verification is an issue. Of course, the production process isn't the way uh, that I modeled it in the previous slide. Looks nice, but that's not how production really works. And so these are issues that we're working through. Um, we have the online trading system ready, but we're still working with the NRBs to really figure out what's going to serve their interests and the producers as well. But we're hopeful that for the next season, this will be in place and it will manage to execute transactions. Um, but as I said, it's been a fascinating and humbling experience. I've learned more about groundwater management in the last year. From talking with producers and water managers uh, than I think in all the years before that. So to summarize, you know, we have everywhere around the world that you go, we have the same issues about agricultural groundwater. It's the same stories we've got. We care about food security and rural livelihoods. We care about impacts on freshwater ecology. There's upstream downstream conflict and there's urban agricultural conflict. These same concerns, you see them in China, you see them in India, you see them in Europe, you see them in the US. It's all the same. They drive our research and policy agenda. We want to try to address it. However, however, um, when we look at actual water user behavior, it may be sensitive to economic incentives, or it may be based on very simple heuristics and beliefs. So we assume that farmers, we're economists, we like to assume that farmers are profit maximizers. But it may be that instead they irrigate when their neighbors irrigate, or they irrigate 
when the sword is right. It turns out actually that from a, a dynamic theoretical decision making sense, that's a very good way of choosing how to pyramid. I don't have time to talk about that today, but there's more research on that. The biophysical impacts of water uh, are spatial, dynamic, and stochastic. This creates a lot of problems. It makes the research fascinating. It makes the research fascinating, but it makes policy hard because, again, we're regulating people. There are policies in place that presumably will have a real impact. Importantly, every water story is local. Every single water story is local and has some quirk, some feature, that if you don't understand it, your analysis will be wrong. And every water story requires knowledge of the institutions, the stakeholders, and the history. And that's a really hard thing for us as researchers to be able to bridge. Because it requires a commitment to place-based research. It requires a commitment to go out and talk to people. And that's very hard. And that's not the way that our incentives of generally set up. And the other thing that's tough, it's not tough, it's an opportunity. When we look at the successful groundwater management stories, at places where things are working, typically when you dig down and talk to people, at the end of the story, there's one person or a very, very small group of people with a vision about how the change should occur. And that's a wonderful thing, and we should celebrate those people. Many of those people are actually within 200 miles of this room. But that creates a problem. So our policy, our impacts are idiosyncratic. Everything is idiosyncratic. And it makes translation of research different. How do we take lessons learned in one place and apply them somewhere else when at the end of the day there's one person that's driving the agenda? And so to me, this is the opportunity. You know, this is being able to, to take advantage, to understand the commonality, but take advantage of the differences uh, in a way that uh, uh, is effective is, is both a challenge and an opportunity. So I'll leave you at that point, and thank you very much. I think uh, we have a few minutes for questions after this fascinating lecture. Yes. It occurs to me that over the past four years that the traditional market forces have been wildly distorted by a series of target prices and loan support through various iterations of U.S. Farmville coming from Congress. So I watched 50 years of Republican Valley agriculture go from essentially a dry land farming dry edible beans, sunflower seeds, etc. to a group of people in agriculture that were really chasing the farm bill and planting feed grains that were listed under the commodity title for the U.S. farm bill. I'm getting to a question. If, if that theory is correct, and if Congress indeed is on the eve of pulling that whole model out of the American economy, Shouldn't we be reminded of the old naval rubric, never fire a torpedo at a sinking ship? Which means if agriculture in the Republican Valley is going to have that response, the normal market market forces will return it by its own deep and first loss ocean, which 
dry farming and the crops that were there 35 or 40 years ago without an enormous transfer of public resources to retire wells and irrigation. So the question is, as we as we uh, reform agricultural principles, what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I, my, I, I'm not disagreeing with anything you said, but if you add social and political science to your model, which the last slide points out, then you come up with a slightly different conclusion to the forces that propel us there. And if they're going to be reversed, they could be reversed without having a transfer of this huge amount of wealth in that, in that valley. And every other valley, west of the 100 meridians. So it's just yeah, a theory. Yeah, it's a, I'm, yeah, I mean, it's I'm a, not making a statement, I'm asking a question. So I guess I, I can perhaps reply with an opinion. Sure. Um, and that is that my opinion is that in, in much of the West, even without price supports, producers would find a way to innovate and to use water to make the land more productive and dry land. Uh, now the crop mix may change, uh, the production practices may change, but I think that irrigation uh, in order to support food production is something that is, is a feature of our landscape here. You know, you can look at the New Zealand now. New Zealand is much smaller. New Zealand removed its price supports. Uh, and they had a rough few years, but New Zealand now has a very competitive agricultural sector. There's disagreement over, over the years as to how much money actually goes to, I mean, depending on commodity prices, more or less money goes to price support programs. At the moment, when commodity price is high, price supports aren't doing anything. Right? They don't buy. Um, a different way of saying your question is that the issue of land going back to dry land, I think that will happen. I don't think it will happen in the upper republic. And the reason is, and this is kind of another strand of research that initially I had in my talk, but I took out and I see that at the time and that was okay. If you look at what's driving uh, Producer decision making, well yields and saturated thickness are really important. Producers care about well yields. And the impact of active depletion uh, isn't so much on dropping water tables, but it's on reducing well yields. And so, somewhere like Western Kansas, once the well yields drop far enough, then you transition back to agriculture. And so, to my mind, uh, there's two futures for irrigated agriculture. One is you transition back to dry land because you've depleted your resource entirely and you can't support well. The other is that at some point you find a way to constrain a total amount of irrigation and then you manage to sustain it by using some kind of market forces. But I don't but, think there's much in between. But aren't well yields ultimately tied to the water requirements of the genetics of the plant crop? That's right. And as plant genetics improves, we can change how much water. In fact, you can see that in the in the data for the Upper Republican health, the applied water, the, the technology matters, the crop variety matters. Um, but even so, if you only have 50 gallons per minute on a well, you can't reach your crop water requirements in a way to make that pay. So you can stop there again. So this this I mean, the questions are very good, and, and I wish I could see in the future and see what was going to happen. Um, I think the dynamics and the spatial issues and the resource issues are a lot more nuanced uh, and there is enormous potential for thresholds and complexity to change those. I think we're in for a lot of surprises 
and our goal is to try to anticipate what the surprises are in a way that buffers both food production and the rural economy. Um, certainly 50 years ago, if we had done a model looking 50 years forward into how the high plains looked, we would be wrong. And I think that may well be the case 50 years into the future now. I'm an agricultural economist, and I'm on your side. I want to ask you a question that has the special implications for the analytical model that we have economists use to look at commonwealth economics. And for previous discussion in the moment, you said water studies are all local, they require knowledge of institutions, stakeholders, and I want to give you an example example and tell you the implications for Morocco. In Morocco, for example, I remember participating in a project where land was held in common. Okay. Uh, water is a common product of research, but there was no treasury of the commons because the social structure was based on kinship. So there was a cooperative equilibrium in a sense. They then World Bank researchers trained at Berkeley and Nebraska and other places. And the first, the first instance is that let's have a, a water permitting process. So we say if the water permit consistent with the social structure, uh, sometimes it can be pretty defensive. We, we, we want, it's almost like the traffic history resistance. Since the institutions are so complex, and maybe folks just feel simply heuristic, it will make it very difficult for us to work these things out in our optimizing mode. So the underlying philosophy about neoclassical modeling seems to fall by the side all the relevant institutional features. So how does one balance between tractability, how we go about solving the problem? Because I don't agree with you about nothing. It's not a lot of us are not willing to go and ask people how they operate. Sometimes we are afraid to find out how we operate because once we're including in our optimizing model, it may not it may not work. Those heuristics are not easy to use. Right. Yes, yes. You, you're not going to like my answer. I guess I have I have two parts to the answer. One is that um, yeah, I mean, all the models are wrong. I mean, that's the standard answer. Um, one of the important parts of our research is to understand whether one policy may work or not. And so the example of a tradable permit system, in some contexts it can work, but market forces in other places may be terrible. And so understanding what the limits of these things are are very important. And I certainly wouldn't suggest that this is a panacea that goes everywhere. Now, in terms of how you incorporate the right information in your models in a way that makes sense? That's a great question. In uh, my own experience, the answer has been very complicated. And I don't, that's an answer that's hard. Uh, so I took part in the NSF ICOR program earlier this year. And, and part of that program, uh, you're supposed to go out and talk to 100 people. And so we talked to nearly 100 producers and water managers uh, about what their problems were and how they viewed water how they made decisions. And the answers that they got, or that I got, of course, were completely different to the answers that I would put into models. Oh, and I'll give you an example of where that can work in our favor. 
If you go out and also produces, how do you decide how to irrigate? An answer that you'll very often get is I irrigate when the soil is dry. Pretty standard answer. When you look at engineering models of irrigation decision making, very many of them are uh, very complex optimizations that take into account all future beliefs about climate and do amazing updating on expected profits at the end of the season. Um, and those are computationally very, very intensive. They give very elegant results. They in no way matter the producer decision making. Now, if instead you build a model of soil moisture, where crop growth depends on soil moisture, which is how the current interseason crop production functions work, the optimal decision rule actually comes out with a soil moisture target. So you have a stochastic dynamic programming model that comes out with a soil moisture target, and that soil moisture target says, irrigate when the soil is dry. And so uh, I think actually there's huge potential. I mean, I think this is a great opportunity. If we can figure out the right ways to engage and the right information to ex extract and the right abstractions to make, our research will get a lot better. I'm an economist, and I get very nervous when I hear economists say, we did this model, and it shows that, that producers are making wrong decisions, that you know, it doesn't make sense what they're doing. So they must be wrong. I get very nervous about that. These are people that have been on the land for a long time, and their livelihoods depend on it in a way that ours don't. And so I think that is a signal there that we need to go and understand better. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's tough there. Then that's a problem with the model, not with the model. 
I think everybody can see in the room why it's so wonderful to collaborate with Barnabas. <laughs> 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 well, it's good to see Barnabas. Really, really, really. I suppose the answer is if you don't like the answer we give, you find another economist. <laughs> 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 I don't know if we want to close it formally now, and then anyone who would like to stay. Uh, and I'll be some more. <laughs> uh, you're more than welcome uh, to do that. But uh, let me uh, ask you to join me in just thanking Nick for a while.